the field that this ain't exactly real Or it's real but it ain't exactly there From the war against disorder From the sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio Buying for the 99% for January 6th, 2024. A significant day indeed, or the anniversary of one. And the intro music, unchanged as always, Leonard Cohen, Democracy, and also unchanged <laughs> for now. Is you're listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 101.5 KFGM, no punctuation, .org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio Buy-In for the 99%. I am Woot Jim. The, oh, well, thank you, Linda. <laughs> You're welcome. I am Jim, <laughs> sound, sound man. And this afternoon, we are joined by Linda Gillison and Mark Anderlich. So we have a troika going on. All right. So we broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording the comfort of our own homes, which for 33% of us would be in stolen homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. So, uh, Linda, yeah. let our dear listeners know where you're speaking from. This is a show of national scope. And mm -hmm. we can tell that because I'm back here in North Carolina, where I moved after lots of great years in Montana, in Missoula. And I'm in the in the homeland of so many Indian peoples. It's really quite amazing. I guess I'm going to say the Lemby for my usual reason, but um, truly there was such a wealth of indigenous folks here in the early days of our country that it's, it's hard to say exactly whose homeland this was, but honors to them and it's about time we honor them. Here, here. And Jim is in Tucson, Arizona, because Missoula is just way too cold <laughs> for a tired, weary old man. And it is, um, and Arizona has a plethora of Native American populations, 22 tribes alone in the state. And I think in, I think the Yaqui tribe is most notable in Tucson where I am. 
we're going to have to mm. look for some and say hi. Mm -hmm. Or as um, Mexicans call that city Tucson. Do um, they really? Yes. Oh, um, gosh. Well, makes our sense. You got to give it to them. Makes sense. It, it That's does. Right. It's, yeah, it, I've. <laughs> it's in, not in a Spanish for another that's for another program, Mark. That's I for think. another yeah. program, yeah. In my short 70 years on this mortal coil, one thing I have learned is that uh, Mexico starts at the Sacramento River and the Arkansas River, mm -hmm. regardless right. of whatever Winfield Scott did about mm -hmm. you know, back in mm -hmm. 1840s. Mm-hmm. Well, our show, Voice of the People, seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on that news that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. We cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class in Montana and elsewhere, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. All that said, as usual, we give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick, hope you're doing well. Hey, Mick, I hope you're well. Happy, Happy New Year. 2024, Mick. Yeah. Well, we Looking have forward a... to seeing you again. <laughs> yes. Well, we have a good show today about, well, let's face it, a lot of terrible things. Um, but, um, our word of the week is genocide. That's that's a pretty good showstopper right there. Um we will also cover the charges of genocide that South Africa has brought against Israel. Uh, and uh, we will look at the suppression of free speech in the U.S. on the Gaza situation and its ramifications. Uh, and we will rerun an interview with uh, Israeli human rights academic Neve and activist Neve Gordon. Uh, and that interview was done in May 2021. Uh, so, and we hope to have uh, an interview with Neve uh, real soon, a more current one um, at, for our next show. So, um, and uh, also in the show, we will look at and discuss the about the efforts to keep Donald Trump off the presidential ballot in several states uh, under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Finally, we will look at efforts by the Unhoused Neighbors Union of Missoula to defeat a city council proposed ordinance that would make it very difficult for the unhoused to sleep outdoors in Missoula. So, you two, that's a whole lot for your community radio dollar. I think you would agree. Absolutely. Though down here it would be peso. <laughs> I look forward to hearing all that, Mark. All right. Indeed. Our word of the week, lamentably, is genocide. That word has reared its ugliness recently over allegations that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians living in Gaza, including the Republic of South Africa presenting the charge of genocide against the state of Israel in the International Court of Justice. That's right, Jim. Um, that charge was made by South Africa on December 28th. Both, uh, well, Turkey and Malaysia and the uh, uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation have also added their country's name to the charge. But we'll cover that in a little bit later in the show. So since genocide is the word of the week, 
And maybe the word of the millennium too. <laughs> what could you give a more concise definition of genocide, Mark? Yeah, I am so glad, Jim, you asked that. Um, as listeners know, we like to sometimes use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. And we use Wikipedia, as we use Wikipedia, we do so with our eyes open, and we include this note about it. Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. And as reporters Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal wrote in a June 11th, 2020 article in the Gray Zone, quote, Wikipedia has become a bulletin board for corporate and imperial interests under the watch of its Ian Randian founder, Jimmy Wales, and the veteran U.S. regime change operative who heads the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Mayer. In other words, Wikipedia it can be culpable and capable of spreading disinformation itself. That all said, according to Wikimedia, quote, in 1948, the United Nations Genocide Convention defined genocide as any of five acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. These five acts were killing members of the group, causing them serious bodily or mental harm, imposing living conditions intended to destroy the group, preventing births, and forcibly transferring children out of the group. Victims are targeted because of their real or perceived membership of a group, not randomly, end quote. Um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which I've I visited uh, many years ago. It's, I would highly recommend anyone in Washington, D.C. go visit that museum. Um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. confirms this definition of genocide and adds, quote, there are a number of other serious violent crimes that do not fall under the specific definition of genocide. They include crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and mass killing, end quote. Yeah, and genocide is perhaps the biggest evil, the most serious crime that can be committed. I think that's right, Jim. Genocide is considered to be the ultimate crime. Uh, since we like these things here on this show, <laughs> where does the word genocide come from? Uh, very good. Well, uh, it's. I was kind of surprised at how new the word is. Um, Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide in his 1944 book, Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. Uh, this is the entry from Wikipedia on that. Um, and, and this is directly quoting from Lemkin's book. After reading about the 1921 assassination of Talat Pasha, the main architect of the Armenian genocide, by Armenian Sogoman Talerian, I think I butchered that one enough. Lemkin asked his professor why there was no law under which Talat could be charged. He later explained that as a lawyer, I thought that a crime should not be punished by the victims, but should be punished by a court, end quote. According to Wikipedia, Lemkin, Lemkin defined genocide as follows, uh, quote, new conceptions require new terms. By genocide, we mean the destruction of a nation or of an ethnic group. This new word coined by the author to denote an old practice, and it's 
goes w- way back in antiquity. Um, oh, yes. Denote uh, an old practice in its modern development is made from the ancient Greek word genos. Did I say that right, Linda? Mm-hmm. You should say genos. Genos, which mm-hmm. means race or tribe, in the Latin side, which means killing. Mm-hmm. Thus corresponding in its formulation to such words as tyrannicide, homicide, infanticide, etc. Um, generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation, except when accomplished by mass killings of all members of a nation. It is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves. The objectives of such a plan would be disintegration of the political and social institutions, of culture, language, national feelings, religion, and the economic existence of national groups, and the destruction of the personal, their personal security, liberty, health, dignity, and even the lives of the individuals belonging to such groups. Genocide is directed against the national group as an entity, and the actions involved are directed against individuals, not in their individual capacity, but as members of the national group, end quote. That really sums it up. And lamentably, the last couple of hundred years, Uh, We've seen examples that rival what Linda can talk about from the ancient world where there was competitions for civilizations to see, you know, who was going to be allowed to exist. You know, I I posit that um, colonialism was (laughs) had had genocidal features of it all over the place Mm -hmm. when the, the people in northwestern Europe decided that they were going to remake the world into their own image and subjugate the peoples that had the misfortune of living someplace else. And of yeah. course, the mid 20th century had lots of lessons to teach. Well, as I, I agree with you, Jim, and one of the things as Mark was reading the definition crafted in 1940, whatever it was, 44, mm-hmm. um, it, it just sounds to me like the genocide, and I'll say attempted genocide because of something I'm going to refer to in a second, the genocide of indigenous people in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank there you. Is not, <laughs> I overlooked that. There is not That's a wonderful. campaign, I think, that can be more closely described with these words than yep. the attempt to eradicate Native Americans in this country. Yep. Uh, I completely um, agree. Yeah. yeah. And I, I I said genocide, and I'm sort of, um, I, I was in a meeting in uh, Minneapolis, a Dem- democracy summit, probably five, six years ago. And, and the, the um, keynote speaker of the first session, the first plenary was a Native American man, um, you know, sort of 40, 50, 60 years old, whatever. And, and, he spoke, and then somehow the dis- there came a discussion afterward, and somebody who was not an indigenous person 
said something about we've committed genocide against against the indigenous peoples in this country. And a young man who was an indigenous fellow shot up and said, attempted genocide. <laughs> and I'll never forget that because it was so important for that young guy to make it clear that he said, we're still here. Yeah. We're still here, right? So we the, the UN has all of these terms for making people be guilty. Number one, they don't apply them um, uh, evenly, right? But but in some senses, we talk about genocide as a completed task. And it was young, it was important to this young man in Minneapolis, where there, at least back when I lived, there was one of the largest Native American ghettos in a city in the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, to say, no, we're still here, by gosh, right? Yep. And um, so it's it's I, I've been thinking a lot since since you told me that we were going to be talking about this, particularly, Mark, how these definitions by the U.N. and by U.N. conventions and U.N. committees and U.N. What, whatever, uh, they all set out to place blame for something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's probably a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. But. It's not always successful. And that's, I mean, it seems like a silly thing to say maybe, but but it just wasn't, and it always comes to my mind when I think of this, because that young man just popped up in the middle of a big mm-hmm. room and said, attempted genocide. Right. Because we're yeah. still here, right? So I just yeah. think these things and people we try to kill off, it often doesn't work right even though we you know try our best and that's i don't know if that's very helpful or not but all of these definitions like holocaust we didn't have that before before the un came up with the definition and so on and these ideas that as an international group we all live by the same laws Mm -hmm. and so on is just um um Silly. Okay. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I had a similar experience in that um, one day I was walking through the parking lot at the Boeing Employees Credit Union in Everett, Washington, and um, I struck up a conversation with somebody, and uh, we talked about where we came from other than driving to the parking lot, you know, going a little further back in the family history. And he uh, he mentioned he was Armenian. And he then said, you know, the darndest thing, my my relative um, was, you know, part of the Ar- Ar- Armenian extermination attempt. And he um, somebody split his head open. And he just fell to the ground and didn't move. And when the people came back a couple of minutes later or some amount of time to make sure that they killed everybody for sure, they didn't notice that he wasn't dead yet. And they left him alone and he recovered and he lived. 
and he raised a family and he had many grandchildren and here we are so isn't life wonderful we survived <laughs> it struck me you know a lot of people would have an attitude about that and feel like they were being um persecuted <laughs> but just the opposite he was so excited to say they couldn't do it we survived we thrived here we are i'm in america the world's greatest country well wasn't going to argue the point with him. <laughs> Didn't want to bust the mood. <laughs> but uh, he, he the the sensation was one of joy and um, elation that he survived. Isn't that weird? <laughs> well, I so I <laughs> did. I did. I <laughs> did. I complete that topic. Should we next talk about what's current news, Mark? Or... Yeah. I'm sorry. But you're fine. You're no, fine. I'm sorry. No, you're both fine. All, all I, I would just say is that um, being successful in committing genocide is not the foundation of being guilty of genocide. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Linda, that's a really, Linda really good point. <laughs> and, so, and if we ever start talking about maybe... Um, the next president being allowed to be on the ballot on all 50 states. That's sort of a segue into that topic. Okay, good deal. Well, so Mark, I mean, what about this current news? Yeah, well, Mark, <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> um, well, you know, we mentioned at the top of the show, South African government has laid the charge of genocide at the feet of Israel in the International Court of justice in the Hague, Netherlands, and that mm -hmm. the government of Turkey, Malaysia, and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation have also signed on as well, according to the Palestine Chronicle on January 5th. And according to a January 2nd report from the BBC, the hearing will take place January 11th and 12th, so next week. Good. Yeah. Yep. And that's a preliminary hearing, I think, so... Um, well, it, you know, it's worth reading uh, the introduction. I thought we should read the introduction of this charge uh, of December 28th um, by South Africa. And because it's going to be in the news a lot. And I think to get a little better understanding of why, uh, what exactly is being charged in, 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 in what's South Africa's sort of legal and ethical, moral uh, standing on this uh, will come to fore. Now, as people will remember, um, South Africa was a nation for many years that was uh, white minority dominated, an apartheid uh, uh, country run by whites and blacks and colored people is what they call them. Coloreds um, were second-class citizens. And so... Um, and they had a revolution there, uh, and now it's, uh, it's still it's majority black. And uh, the leaders, I, th I think it's just highly historically symbolic, uh, not mm -hmm. only that Israel is being accused of genocide, which was the reason why it, the state of Israel was created to begin with, mm -hmm. um, but, Absolutely. Uh, but a former apartheid nation, 
uh, is now accusing a current apartheid nation uh, of genocide. So the history is all over the place here. Um, so the following is taken directly from the charge or application, as it's called, in the International Court of Justice. Um, and then break in whenever you want here. Um, uh, number one, this application concerns acts threatened, adopted, condoned, taken, and being taken by the government and military of the state of Israel against the Palestinian people, a distinct national, racial, and ethnical group in the wake of the attacks in Israel on 7 October 2023. South Africa unequivocally condemns all violations of international law by all parties, including the direct targeting of Israeli citizens, Israeli civilians, and other nationals and hostage-taking by Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups. No armed attack on a state's territory, no matter how serious, even in, an attack involving atrocity crimes, can, however, provide any possible justification for or defense, defense to breaches of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide which is also called the Genocide Convention or the Convention. Whether as a, so I wanted to emphasize that, right? Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. um, South Africa has, has condemned the violence committed by Palestinians against civilians and other war crimes. Uh, and, uh, but in, in using occupation as an excuse for those war, is not an excuse for those war, war crimes. Neither is, uh, Hamas's attack on Israel a justification for them uh, Israel committing war crimes. That's what they're saying right there. Hmm. Um, so the acts and omissions by Israel complained of by South Africa are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group that being the part of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. The acts in question include killing Palestinians in Gaza, causing them serious bodily and mental harm, and you see how they're reflecting the definition of mm -hmm. uh, genocide, mm -hmm. causing them uh, serious bodily and mental harm, and inflicting on them conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction. The acts are all attributable to Israel, which has failed to prevent genocide and is committing genocide in manifest violation of the Genocide Convention, and which has also violated and continuing to violate its other fundamental obligations under the Genocide Convention, including by failing to prevent or punish the direct and public incitement to genocide by senior Israeli officials and others. Mm. That's yes, that. that really mm -hmm. lays it out. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I, I noticed in the Harvard Crimson yesterday that Alan Dershowitz is going to defend Israel at the International mm -hmm. Court right. of Justice. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know. if if he's if he's not arrested for cavorting with uh, I was almost say Jeffrey. Dunn, oh, yeah. But... yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, right. right. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah that's... I'll always remember Mr. Dershowitz is the guy saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that you just have to look away from, like the, um, you know, it, it, it suggests that 
capitalism is bad, but capitalism is what makes civilization possible. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to make as much money as they can whenever they can? Mm-hmm. And sounds I thought, like Alan, um, you're not. <laughs> he sounds like my guy. You got a little work to do, fella. Go <laughs> take some humanities classes mm-hmm. from there you go. Ms. Gillison. <laughs> well, so, you know, I, I, I've heard this, this, uh, statement uh, several times in the past couple of weeks or months or whatever it is that um, it is simply not, I mean, from legal authorities, it's simply not mm, valid for the Israelis to claim self-defense, these folks say, because the action came from a territory which they themselves are occupying. Right. Militarily. And these authorities are saying, really, you can't say my neighbor attacked me if you have troops in your neighbors. You know, it's a different it's a different kettle of fish. And while that doesn't doesn't say it's okay for Hamas, (laughs) what it says is Israel ought not to hide behind a self-defense defense because. This is a situation in which they are occupying another territory, which is trying exactly. to get their foot off. It's like a prison yeah. riot in so many words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you yeah. if you maintain control and you have authority over other people to ensure that they don't act out and do things you don't want, and it happens anyway, who really is culpable? Yeah. Yeah. As as we've covered on the show, one of our interviews, uh uh, the woman had said, and I can't recall her name, I apologize, but she said, yeah, she agreed that Gaza is the world's largest open air prison. That is mm-hmm. exactly what it is. So that's a that's a good comparison there. Yeah. Um, okay, number two, uh, this is the South African application to the International Court of Justice. In preparing this application, South Africa has paid close attention to the provisions of the Genocide Convention, to its interpretation and to its application in the years following its entry into force on 12 January 1951, as well as to the jurisprudence of this court and that of other international courts and tribunals, including the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and the International Criminal Court. South Africa is highly cognizant of the fact that acts of genocide are distinct from other violations of international law sanctioned or perpetuated by the Israeli government and military in Gaza, including intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population, civilian objects and buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, historic monuments, hospitals, and places where the sick and wounded are collected, torture. The starvation of civilians is a method of warfare and other war crimes and crimes against humanity, though there is often a close connection between all such acts. So in other words, what they're saying is that, I mean, genocide is a separate kind of a crime. And I would say even at best, Israel, if if they're not actually committing genocide, they're committing crimes against humanity and war crimes which are almost, I mean, they are very, very serious charges as well and not anything to brag about. Um, so um, uh, 
South Africa is also aware that acts of genocide inevitably form part of a continuum. As Raphael Lemkin, who we quoted earlier, mm -hmm. as Raphael Lemkin, who coined the word genocide himself, recognized. For this reason, it is important to place the acts of genocide in the broader context of Israel's conduct toward Palestinians during its 75-year-long apartheid, its 56-year-long belligerent occupation of Palestinian territory, and its 16-year-long blockade of Gaza, including the serious and ongoing violations of international law associated therewith, including grave breaches of the Fourth Geneva Convention and other war crimes and crimes against humanity. However, when referring in this application to acts and omissions by Israel, which are capable of amounting to other violations of international law, South Africa's case is that those acts and omissions are genocidal in character, as they are committed with the requisite specific intent, dolus specialis. Mm -hmm. uh, a specific special trick, a special plot. A special right? plot. Oh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Specific plot. A specific uh -huh. plot to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as a part of the broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group. That's number two. Mm -hmm. um, number three, South Africa is acutely aware of the particular weight of responsibility in initiating proceedings against Israel for violations of the Genocide Convention. However, South Africa is also acutely aware of its own obligation as a state party to the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide. Israel's acts and omissions in relation to Palestinians violates the Genocide Convention. This is the shared view of numerous other state parties to the convention, including the state of Palestine itself, which has called on world leaders to take responsibility to stop the genocide against our people, end quote. United Nations experts have also repeatedly sounded the alarm for over 10 weeks that, quote, considering statements made by Israeli political leaders and their allies, accompanied by military action in Gaza and escalation of arrests and killing in the West Bank, there is a risk of genocide against the Palestinian people, end quote. United Nations experts have also expressed their profound concern about, quote, the failure of the international system to mobilize to prevent genocide, end quote, against Palestinians and have called on the international community to do everything it can to immediately end the risk of genocide against the Palestinian people. The Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or CERD, um, acting under its early warning and urgent action procedure, has also called on all state parties to the Genocide Convention to fully respect their obligation to prevent genocide. This application by South Africa and its request for the indication of provisional measures fall uh, to be considered in that context and in the light of those calls. It is made against the background of South Africa's foreign policy objective for the attainment of a durable peace between Israel and the state of Palestine, with two states existing side by side within internationally recognized borders based on those existing on 4 June 1967 prior to the outbreak of the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, in line with all relevant United Nations resolutions and international law. Mm -hmm. 
And so what, what, uh, and, and this is a point often not well regarded is that if you're a signatory to the, to this kind of convention, um, you not only should you not commit genocide, you also need to actively prevent it. That's, ah. that's called for in the genocide convention. And um, is the United States signatory and have we ratified that? I believe so. Oh, but, that would be nice. I'm not sure. But, 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 I, but I don't think that the United States recognizes the International Court of Justice. That is, no, no. That, that is the key. So the U.S. Or, or has... Or the International Criminal Court or anything like that. That's right. I mean, that's no right. kidding? And, and they say no. that we... we um, oh, my we, God. The United no. States agrees with the con genocide convention, except when it's applied against the United States or exactly. allies. My point, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And the reason we have not signed on for the International Criminal Court is because we say we're protecting our people who might be charged by some awful right. America-hating, uh, you know, even yeah, like the like ninety five percent of the countries in the world. Exactly. How could that exactly. Yeah. Well, the United States has not yet managed to sign on to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Children yet. So yep. Yep. that's Good. another one we're dragging our feet on. And and there's others mm. as well. And oh, lots. And, and, and you know the whole idea of the international rules based order in which we went funding war in ukraine right is mm -hmm. is is a joke right it's it's uh it's it's the international order that we get to do what we want to do that's the exactly. international order that we're exactly you know, fighting uh, for imperialism u.s imperialism around the world um, right right yeah. yeah well i i remember slobodan milosevic and his and his you know brought to justice by the international court of justice i know I uh -huh. I want to think that the United States went along with everybody else on the charges levied against I'll him. I'll have to look but, into that. But the, but the U.S. did not. If you recall, I think Linda does. Uh, mm -hmm. There were charges leveled against NATO and the United States because remember, mm -hmm. NATO uh, actively was engaged in that war, and uh, yes, NATO mm -hmm. and the U.S. committed war crimes. And but no one from those countries ever stood trial in Yugoslavia. No, so, no and that, kidding. And that, and that is I wasn't that, aware of that. That really opens my eyes. Yeah. Okay. And that was one of the reasons why uh, Putin uh, pretty much ignored any any kind of charges of criminal uh, war crimes against Russia for invasion mm -hmm. of Ukraine. <laughs> He said, "Look, look, look, look! What happened in Yugoslavia? You know, it's yeah. this. This is not a fair and even uh, uh, t tempered mm -hmm. uh, world's based or uh, rules based world order. That's no. Uh, that would be uh, it's very hypocritical, right? Yeah, I, I right. my memory is that you the, the United States had a very low profile in the police action there, except for Kosovo." Right, and that's Kosovo is where this all was taken. Place. Yeah, uh, an yeah. awful lot of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, number f well, moving on here. Number four. Um, 
The facts relied on by South Africa in this application and to be further developed in these proceedings, and I might add there's like 80 pages of uh, facts that uh, are, this is just the introduction, right? And the summary, I guess, but there's 85 pages of, of very detailed um, uh, and very well uh, sourced uh, uh, facts. Um, the, against the background of apartheid, expulsion, ethnic cleansing, annexation, occupation, discrimination, and the ongoing denial of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination, Israel, since 7 October 2023 in particular, has failed to prevent genocide and has failed to prosecute the direct and public incitement to genocide. Again, there's committing the genocide yourself, but also failing to stop genocide. Those are both crimes under the Genocide Convention. More gravely still, Israel has engaged in, is engaged in, and risks further engaging in genocidal acts against the Palestinian people in Gaza. Those acts include killing them, causing them serious mental and bodily harm, and deliberately inflicting on them conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction as a group. On that last one, I think there's no doubt. No, um, no doubt. Right. Re repeated statements by Israeli state representatives, including at the highest levels by the Israeli president, prime minister, and minister of defense, express genocidal intent. That intent is also properly to be inferred from the nature and conduct of Israel's military operation in Gaza, having regard inter alia, to Israel's failure to provide or ensure essential food, water, medicine, fuel, shelter, and other humanitarian assistance for the besieged and blockaded Palestinian people, which has pushed them to the brink of famine. It is also clear from the nature, scope, and extent of Israel's military attacks on Gaza, which have involved the sustained bombardment over more than 11 weeks of one of the most densely populated places in the world, forcing the evacuation of 1.9 million people or 85% of the population of Gaza from their homes and hurting them into ever smaller areas without adequate shelter in which they continued to be attacked, killed, and harmed. Israel has now killed in excess of 21,110 named Palestinians, including over 7,729 children, with over 7,780 others missing, presumed dead under the rubble, and has injured over 55,243 other Palestinians, causing them severe bodily and mental harm. Israel has also laid waste to vast areas of Gaza, including entire neighborhoods, and has damaged or destroyed in excess of 355,000 Palestinian homes. That's 355,000 Palestinian homes, alongside extensive tracts of agricultural land, bakeries, schools, universities, businesses, places of worship, cemeteries, cultural and archaeological sites, municipal and court buildings, and critical infrastructure, including water and sanitation facilities and electricity networks, while pursuing a relentless assault on the Palestinian medical and healthcare system. Israel has reduced and is continuing to reduce Gaza to rubble, killing, harming, and destroying its people, and creating conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction as a group. And I might add real quickly, 
um, before we uh, jet to the end here, um, there are pictures taken from space that show mm -hmm. Gaza is <clears throat> pictures of Gaza is a different lighter color, the color of rubble that's visible from space. That's mm -hmm. how, that's that's how yeah. serious this is, yeah. and Gaza is not a big place. No, no, it's not Mark, a big I, place at all. It's, it's like twenty five miles yeah. wide and five miles, or twenty five long and five miles wide, something like that. Very, yeah. A very small, yeah. It, it has higher population density than Tokyo. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And it, it, it you're the statistics that you threw out there reminded me that it truly does fit the definition of genocide. You know, there's. Um, there's a there's a Swedish or a Norwegian news source called Verdun's Gang, which um, very popular there. It was established right after the Germans left and the Norwegians got their own country back. And they report in mid-November that the average age of the Palestinians killed is five years old. Wow. So yeah. five years old. Children. So the yeah. net the net effect is um we'll deal with the adults, but what we really want to do is not have any more adults. Let's not have any people that can grow up to be adults. Right. Mark, and That's I wanted callous. just to just to know that because I looked up genocide, the definition as I was preparing for this. And what um South Africa is doing here is you using the exact language of that definition. There are five actions which characterize no right um, genocide, and they're using the exact language, right? Making their place unable to be inhabited, or or whatever right. they say here. Right. So I yeah. think they're just they're quoting here in their application the exact wording to make it clear that. It, and this like fits into Carthage. the definition of the convention, right? And that's yep. and that's how the legal system works, right? You, sure, sure, you yeah. Have to make your case based on what the law uh, currently says. Right. Mm -hmm. um, precedent, if you will. Precedent <laughs> number five: South Africa. We're almost done here. South Africa, mindful <laughs> of the use kogans. Yeah, use kogans. It means the compelling. Law, the compelling right. Cogains means cogent, right? So it's talking about the, the law which compels us to do something in this case. Okay. Uh, well, mindful of the jus cogens character of the prohibition of genocide and the erga omnes and the erga omnes partes, which means, Linda? Uh, directed <laughs> toward everybody and directed toward... So this means international and toward all parties involved. All parties. So there's no excuse for this. There's no exemption. Right. No exemption. It, the character of the obligations owed by states under the Genocide Convention is making the present application to establish Israel's responsibility for violations of the Genocide Convention, to hold it fully accountable under international law for those violations, and most immediately, to have recourse to this court to ensure the urgent and fullest possible protection for Palestinians in Gaza who remain at grave and immediate risk of continuing and further acts of genocide. 
Um, number, oh. number six, in light of the extraordinary urgency of the situation, South Africa seeks an expedited hearing for its request for the indication of provisional measures. In addition, pursuant to Article 74, uh, subsection 4 of the Rules of Court, South Africa requests the president of the court to protect the Palestinian people in Gaza by calling upon Israel immediately to halt all military attacks that constitute or give rise to violations of the Genocide Convention pending the holding of such hearing, so as to enable any order the court may make on the request for the indication of provisional measures to have its appropriate effects. To that end, the court should order Israel to cease killing and causing serious mental and bodily harm to Palestinian people in Gaza, to cease the deliberate infliction of conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction as a group, to prevent and punish direct and public indictments, incitements to genocide, and to rescind related policies and practices, including regarding the restriction on aid and the issuing of evacuation directives. And the last... Yeah, restriction of aid, please. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, it, and actually the borders are closed to aid again, and this is really frustrating. Oh, no. uh, the United Nations they they had they let some in, but it's nowhere near enough. Um, no. it's it's basically closed. Um, in the last paragraph of the introduction, mindful of the court's important role and the exercise of its grave responsibility in circumstances in which the genocidal acts of which South Africa complains have occurred very recently and are ongoing and have not otherwise been subject to judicial determination or detailed fact-finding, South Africa's application and request for provisional measures provide a more detailed factual account than might otherwise be usual. That account draws in significant part on statements and reports by United Nations chiefs and bodies and non-governmental organizations, as well as eyewitness accounts from Gaza, including from Palestinian journalists on the ground, in circumstances where Israel continues to restrict access to Gaza by international journalists, investigators, and fact-finding teams. However, neither the application nor the request for the indication of provisional measures depends on a determination by the court of each individual incident or complaint referred to herein. Notably, as the court's case law makes clear, what the court is required to do at the stage of making an order on provisional measures is to establish whether at least some of the acts alleged are capable of falling within the provisions of the convention. Mm. At least some of the acts alleged by South Africa are clearly capable of falling within those provisions, end quote, end quote. So it doesn't have to be, uh, again, it, it, it doesn't have to be successful. It doesn't have to include all of those things. Just one of those things is enough. And and more than that, Mark, uh, I mean, this is very restrained, it seems to me, because apparently yes. more of, more than that, they, the court doesn't have to determine that any of these acts falls within the provisions of the convention, but right. that it's capable of falling into the, right? So this oh. is just saying the court needs to act right. if there's an indication that this kind of thing could be going on and we right. sort it out later. Right. Prevent prevention of genocide. What they're arguing, prevention of genocide is more important than trying the guilty afterwards. Right. If it of can course. be done. If it can be done. Yeah. Right. So, yep. 
-hmm. So that's, that's the introduction. I mean, there's, it goes for another 80 plus pages <laughs> um, it, with lots of detail, which we we're not going to mm -hmm. go through, but um yeah. Well, good for them. I just say good for exactly. them. Exactly. Yep. yep. And yep. in all this time, has Congress come out and agreed that there should at least be a cessation of genocide in the form of a ceasefire? Well, um, really asking. Much. Well, ab absolutely not. As of January fifth, Representative Cory Bush's House Resolution seven eighty six calling for an immediate de-escalation and ceasefire in Israel and occupied Palestine has still only 16 co-sponsors in the U.S. House. That's basically, uh. that's basically the squad plus some other progressives, right? Uh, mm -hmm. so, so good for yeah. them. And only Bernie Sanders in yeah. the Senate is calling for the same. Montana Senators John Tester and Steve Daines and House Representatives Matt Rosendale and Ryan Zinke had not signed on to H.R. 786, surprise, surprise. Um, to the yeah. contrary, Senator Daines has introduced, with no co-sponsors yet, and it's probably going nowhere, but he introduced Senate Bill 3052, which forbids any Palestinian from entering the U.S. on a passport from the Palestinian Authority, which, of course, is the legally recognized government right. in <laughs> occupation on the West Bank. So, Oh, uh, God. That Mama is, um, Mama I continue to be astounded by how little there is to admire about our mm -hmm. junior senator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he keeps well, finding I, a I, shovel I, with a longer yeah. and longer handle. Yeah. Well, and well, we, oh, go ahead, Linda. Sorry. I was just going to say something that maybe I shouldn't say, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back with me about John Tester. Mm -hmm. I've always given him money. I've given him money every single month and I don't anymore because of the way he responded when people tried to question him in person about Israel and about what's going on in Palestine. And really it just, it's a step too far, right? Yeah. I mean, yes. it's just too much. He's, he's not shown any courage on this issue whatsoever. No courage going. No courage going. No. There's something about Israel that is a third rail in yes. Washington. In in future shows, we're going to cover license that. To well, do let's anything, go to that. Let's, yeah, and there will let's be apologists. <laughs> yep. Well, we, we had um, to this charge by South Africa um, of genocide, Israel uh has has a reaction of course um yeah. and, and it's no surprise that they vehemently oppose the charge according to the online legal service new, or legal news service jurist on january 2nd quote israeli spokesperson elon levy said on tuesday israel was prepared to defend itself against genocide accusations filed by south africa at the international court of justice which of course is going to be Preliminary held January 11th and 12th. Mm -hmm. uh, Levy mm -hmm. stated on X, formerly known as, <laughs> hate to say Twitter. it, formerly known as Twitter, mm -hmm. that, quote, Israel condemns South Africa's decision to play advocate for the devil, end quote. Oh. Levy further stated that by filing uh, the charge with the ICJ, International Court of Justice, South Africa made itself criminally complicit in enabling the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel post facto, right? I mean, after the fact, right. 
and was attempting to, quote, cover up Hamas's crime against humanity, end quote. I see none of that going on here. Mm -hmm. um, Levy also rebutted accusations of Israeli genocide of Palestinian civilians. He stated that Israel postponed military action for weeks to allow civilians to evacuate, sent 27 million voice and text messages warning of impending danger, and dropped pamphlets directing civilians to humanitarian corridors. Uh, by the way, if you're in a prison, they couldn't leave. There is no place for them to go no, in the five, no, no, 25 no. mile area. And no one's seen any of these. And apparently no one heard any of these messages, right? Because some Israelis are saying, hey, what happened that you didn't warn us, right? Yeah. That our government didn't warn us that this was going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Well, additionally, yeah, that's a topic that hasn't been pursued. No, mm -hmm. it, there, there's going to be a lot of unraveling threads here. Um, but, mm -hmm. um, well, going back to uh, the Israeli government spokesperson, Levy, uh, he okay. said that Hamas was responsible for civilian deaths by using a human shield strategy in which they placed military targets in densely populated civilian areas. You know, it's kind of... Uh, you know, the most densely populated place on earth, where, where else are they going to go? Right. Um, right. Right. And I might also add that Levy also accuses South Africa of anti-Semitism and blood libel, meaning that according to Wikipedia, blood libel or ritual murder libel is an anti-Semitic canard, which falsely accuses Jews of murdering Christians in order to use their blood in the performance of religious rituals, end quote. And of course, that is a canard. That's a terrible canard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I didn't hear anything like that in the South Africa um, application. No. Mm, no. Agreed. And anti-Semitism is another one of those words that was defined by, right, only probably in the 40s. Uh, right. Maybe I, I I don't know. I, don't I know mean, it, it's it had. There's an official definition which says it's against oh. Jews. Yeah, not against Semites because the Palestinians right. are also Semites. Yeah, that's but right. Some an official definition says it's against the Jews. Right. 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 So, um, which is yeah, which is right. which is heinous, right? I mean, I I do not support in any way. Uh, uh, anti-Semitism, right? No. But uh, as we're going to hear later in the show, and I failed to say this, um, Sarah McLean is going to be reading her editorial that was published in the Missoulian, um a few days ago on that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. So we'll we'll get that covered here. We'll see if that if that fact persuades anyone, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, well, we have to speak the truth, even. If uh, few are listening. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the Biden administration's response has to this genocide charge has also been in, informative. According to the independent newspaper on January 2nd, quote, the White House has condemned South Africa's decision to formally accuse Israel of genocide in charges filed at the International Court of Justice, calling the allegations brought by Pretoria meritless. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby slammed South Africa's case as being without merit in response to a question at Wednesday's White House press briefing. 
Mr. Kirby also said that the court submission was counterproductive and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. Hogwash, so, I'd say, and it's a lot more courageous than anything that the that the United States has done. Oh, by, right? by leaps and bounds, yeah, by leaps and bounds. And, you know, we, we had mentioned this before in the show, but the American people, so, you know, the, the, we are ostensibly a democracy, right? Uh, the people rule. Well, and some people say, oh, no, we're a republic. Well, it's like, okay, um, those yeah. are apples right. and oranges. Um, right. You, you you can have a dictatorship in a republic. Um, right, you certainly and, uh, can. Um, so uh, anyway, so supposedly our democracy, you know, and um, the closest thing we usually come to it is opinion polls. Um, mm -hmm. A data for progress poll published on December 5th shows that, quote, a majority of U.S. likely voters support a permanent ceasefire and de-escalation of violence in Gaza, and most prefer that the U.S. prioritize diplomacy and humanitarian aid to curtail violence in the region. Furthermore, we find a wide majority of voters are concerned about a rise in hate incidents toward Jewish and Muslim or Arab Americans. 61% of likely voters, including a majority of Democrats, that's 76%, and independents, 57%, and a plurality of Republicans at 49%, support the U.S. calling for a permanent ceasefire and a de-escalation of violence in Gaza. So, yep. um, right. so we have leaders <clears throat> not listening. We um, the people. That's right. We the people, right? Yep. And, yeah, um, well, it's encouraging to see that there is polling that is showing where people sit on this. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah. So we have numbers because, you know, one side is very shrill and angry and indignant. And it, you know, it makes you um, reluctant to speak out. But it's nice that people are speaking their mind. That's right. By making choices and all those choices being aggregated and shown as poll numbers. Right. But we're we're all that that uh, speaking out is also being repressed in this country. And, yes, it is. And we've been following a little bit the Columbia University story, but uh, as you may have heard, the president of Harvard University, Claudine Gay, has resigned mm -hmm. her possession less than a year after having been appointed for allegedly her for allegedly uh, failing to make Jewish students at Harvard feel safe when protests against Israel's assault on Gaza arose. Leading the charge to oust Gay using corporate raider tactics is billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman. And we love billionaires on this show, don't we? Oh, we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Give I just had one for breakfast. It was great. <laughs> he had Tabasco. Give us a billionaire. His net worth is approximately 4 or $5 billion, you know, give or take a few hundred hmm. million. Um, Anyway, uh, this is from MarketWatch on January 5th. Quote, on Twitter, now known as X, Ackman said he initially supported Gay's appointment to Harvard's presidency in late 2022. But after pro-Palestinian protests on Harvard's campus followed the October 7th attack by Hamas in Israel that left more than 1,200 Israelis dead, Ackman said he felt Gay didn't do enough to make Jewish students feel safe. 
After a highly criticized appearance before Congress in which Gay answered questions about whether calling for genocide against Jews was a violation of Harvard's policy, and, and that was, to be fair, the, the uh, chant um, from the river to the sea, uh, which is interpreted by a lot of Zionists and supporters of Israel as being sure. genocidal, which I would assure you, uh, most people who use that do not use it in that way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other fine and and solid reasons to, to believe that. Um, after highly criticized appearance before Congress in which Gay answered questions about whether calling for genocide against Jews was a violation of Harvard's policies by saying it depended on the context, which is was a bad move on Gay's part, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Ackman more Ackman more vocally called for her ouster, and uh, Gay said in a New York Times op-ed Wednesday that she fell into a well-laid trap at the congressional hearing. Uh, end quote. So Ackman, yeah, billionaire, really led the charge to oust her and and threatened to withhold funding. Right? This is this is kind of mm -hmm. how. Free speech dies uh, when you're uh, subject to billionaires. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. I'm so pleased to have as our guest today, uh, Neve Gordon. I, I want to say that uh, Neve and I first met back in the 1990s, I think, when uh, uh, Neve was getting his PhD at the University of Notre Dame. Um, so, uh, just as a as a background on that, and currently, uh, Neve is the professor of human rights uh, at the School of Law at the Queen Mary University of London. And that's London, England, by the way. <laughs> um, well, welcome to the show, Neve. Thanks for having me, Mark, and great to see you after I don't know twenty-five years. Yeah, it's been it's been about that. Yeah, and it's great to see you too. I'm so I'm so pleased that we're able to do this interview. And um, and so, uh, uh, Neve, you're you're uh, an Israeli native, and uh, tell us a little something about uh, about yourself. Well, I was born in Israel. I lived uh, as a child for five years from 1970 to 1975 on Signal Mountain right outside Chattanooga, Tennessee. <laughs> and that's where I got my English from and mm -hmm. went back to Israel, did uh, high school and everything, went to the military, was a paratrooper for three years. Got uh, I was wounded in uh, in Lebanon or on the Israeli Lebanese border in 1986, and then um, kind of did a degree in uh, philosophy in at Hebrew University, and then the, this was the time that the first Palestinian Intifada erupted, and I began working in human rights. The Intifada means uprising, and we're talking between late 1987 until 1993, this uprising went forth. Um, and a lot of human rights NGOs were sprouting during this period, both in the Palestinian territories and in Israel. 
And I was lucky enough to, to become the first director of a group that's called Physicians for Human Rights Israel. And I did that for a few years. And, uh, and, and after that, I decided that I wasn't satisfied and went and did a, a PhD in political science at Notre Dame. That's when we met. And then after that, returned back to Israel and worked as a, a, as a professor in an Israeli university for about 17 years. And in 2016, I moved to London and I'm now teaching at a London university here. So that's kind of a, a five minute trajectory. But during those years, um, uh, I, I was constantly active in what I would call not the peace movement, but the anti-colonial movement. And I think that distinction is very important. And we have to think of the words we use when we describe different instances. And first, uh, my a lot of major activism went into a group called Ta'ayush. Ta'ayush is in Arabic, and it means living together. And uh, I, I was very active with, with Ta'ayush during the second intifada, which erupted in September 2000, not long after I returned to Israel from my PhD studies, and was active there for, for several years. And then I had children. And I don't know if you realize, Mark, but in Israel, there's about 2 million school children in Israel. But the, the education system is completely segregated, not by law, but de facto, it actually is. So Jewish uh, children will study in, in schools almost totally only with Jewish other Jewish students, and Palestinians will study only with Palestinian students. And from time to time, there'll be a, a Palestinian single student in a Jewish school, but because it's it's not illegal to study together. It's about how space is organized. Space is extremely segregated in Israel. In Israel, you have a uh, uh, 1,200, something like that, communities, some uh, villages, towns, cities, kibbutzim, farming communities. Out of that 1,200, less than 1% are mixed. The rest are either Jewish or Palestinian citizens of Israel. And the schools, as in every country, are built ne next to where people live. Mm -hmm. And so basically, Jews study alone and Palestinians study alone. And, and that's not a good thing. And so when my first child was born, uh, we were living in, in Beersheba, which is uh, uh, 200,000, something like that uh, city, uh, which had maybe 5% of its population or maybe 10 are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And we, we, we had some friends among these Palestinians, and we said, why don't we, we establish a school that's not segregated? Why don't we establish a school for our children that is not private, it's a public school, so everyone can go to. Uh, 
but it's also not segregated where Jews and Palestinian children can go to school together, play together, learn each other's language, Hebrew and Arabic, but learn also the narratives, the historical narratives of each group so that the, the Palestinian uh, students uh, and the, the Jewish students learn not only about Judaism and the Zionist narrative to the the, the whole Israeli-Palestinian, uh, I don't know how to call it, conflict or whatever, and, uh, uh, and, and the Jewish students learn about the Muslim and Christian holidays because Palestinians are either Muslim or Christian, and about the Palestinian narrative, the historical narrative of what went on here. Uh, and we, both my partner and I, we invested 10 years of our lives with others. It was a whole community building this community. And, and it came to be at a certain point that it wasn't a school with a community, but a community that had a school. Mm. And it was a very beautiful thing. Um, it was a lot of struggles, a lot of fights, but, and then my kids a bit outgrew it and, uh, and uh, we decided to move to, for our second kind of thing, adventure. And we moved to London and we're both uh, working here now. Oh. So what, what you're describing sounds very similar to the kind of segregation in um, schools in this country, in the United States, uh, between black and white children in, in larger cities, um, often uh, having to do with where people are living more than sending some kids to one school and another to another school. Um, so I, I, I think that that can be relatable to a lot of people. Um, one question I had too, and I think a lot of people are um, uh, surprised to learn is uh, the, uh, uh, that there are citizens of Israel that are Palestinian. And, and that obviously is uh, at the heart really of, uh, I wanna introduce a little bit of the Human Rights Watch, which just came out with a report saying Israel is an apartheid, um, practicing apartheid. Um, how, um, explain that, how does that, how is that, uh, uh, how does that happen? How does that work? What, what's, What's your what's your view on that? So basically between the Jordan Valley and the Mediterranean Sea, which is the area that Israel controls, there's, uh, I would say, four major categories of people. I mean, you can think of other categories and divide it differently, but I will divide it to four. One is the citizens of Israel. And that category is divided to two major groups. 80% are Jews and 20% are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And that's about together about eight and a half million people, maybe nine million people today. But Israel also controls the area that's called the West Bank. It controls East Jerusalem, and, and, and many people would say it still controls Gaza. And the West Bank is 
about uh, uh, two and a half, close to three million people that are also Palestinians, but they're stateless. They do not have a state. Uh, many of them are refugees from villages and towns and cities in what later became Israel. Uh, some of them are from the West Bank originally, but it's, it's two and a half, three million people that Israel has ultimate control over them. It can control their movement. It can control uh, uh, a lot of areas in their life, most areas in their life. And, and they lack any citizenship. And by lacking citizenship, they can't con vote for the government. They, 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 and, and they don't have a lot of basic rights that you and I have. The fourth group are, are the residents of East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem, after the 1967 war, was annexed together with 27 other Palestinian villages. And these people, because the area was annexed, were given not citizenship, but residency. Residency could be something like you guys have the green card for immigrants. Now, they're not immigrants. They were born there. Their parents were born there. Their grandparents and great-grandparents were born there. But they do not receive citizenship. And, and they therefore cannot vote for government also. Now, within this situation of this block of land that has these four different categories, there's also different legal systems. There's a legal system that deals with the citizens. So even if you're a Palestinian and I'm a Jew, but we're both citizens, we're under the same legal system. But we could be neighbors in the West Bank and I'll be the Jewish settler, you'll be the Palestinian. Even though we live maybe 500 yards away, there's one legal system for me, a democratic legal system. And then there's a non-democratic legal system for you, okay? Where it's a military legal system, where you go instead of to a civil court, you'll go to a military court. By the way, I think the, 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 the numbers for uh, convictions in the military court are in the, in the 90 percentile. <laughs> so when you end up in a military court and you're indicted or, or you're tried in a military court, you're not in a good position mm -hmm. to be in. So we have all that. And then within Israel, we have even among the Jewish and Palestinian citizens, there are several laws that give preference to the Jews. I'll give you one, one, one law as an example, or maybe two laws. One law is the, is the law of return. Any Jew, no matter where he or she were born, no matter where their grandparents and ancestors are from, has a right tomorrow morning to take a plane to Israel, fly there, reach there, and get citizenship. And they'll get citizenship, no questions asked. Any Palestinians who was expelled in the 1948 war or their parents were expelled, even though all their ancestors and grandparents and parents all lived in what was Palestine before Israel, existed, 
would want to come back to their home from which they were expelled, or not even to their home, but would want to come back to Israel, they could never get citizenship. Okay, so that's a, a big difference. There are other laws regarding space and who can own space and who can live in different communities and what language is official and that the whole idea that Israel is a state for its Jews and not for this not for its citizens are all discriminatory laws and therefore human rights watch but i must say human rights watch followed on the footsteps of Richard Falk, who was the repertoire for the UN, and Al-Haq, which is a Palestinian human rights organization in the West Bank, and B'Tselem, which is an Israeli organization in Jerusalem, uh, they've all already said it a long time ago, that this is, that Israel practices the crimes of apartheid. So Human Rights Watch finally wrote a report saying the same thing, and it's true. It is true, uh, um, and and I'm I'm deeply uh, saddened by this. I I have an emotional uh, connection with Israel, uh, but at the same time, I also see the reality on the ground, and it's not fun being a Palestinian in Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to say the least. Um... In our last show, we did cover a little bit about uh, that uh, the groups that you named had named this situation of apartheid in Israel a long time ago, and Human Rights Watch is finally, for whatever reasons, is finally coming around. So, um, what? Um, so, you know, it seems like I've you know, I talk to, you know, people around here and, and people kind of throw up their hands and say, well, this is an ancient fight between the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Jews and the Muslims or whatever, you know, however they see that and say, well, it just seems to be that's, that's what they do because um, it has gone on for quite a while. But what um, as U.S. citizens, right? The U.S. has a very critical role to play in maintaining the situation, don't don't you think? Yeah. So, I mean, what we have, if we if we think of apartheid uh, South Africa, and the two are very different. When you say apartheid, you don't mean Israel is like South Africa. You mean right. There's a legal definition of certain, certain forms of exploitation and discrimination and prejudice that come into effect through the law that makes it into an apartheid regime legally. <clears throat> and in Israel, what, what you have is a society that's become a Jewish supremacist society, right? that the Jews feel that they are better and they deserve more and, and are entitled to more than the Palestinian citizens and the stateless Palestinians. Now, because it's become such a society and, and the government reflects the opinions and reproduces these opinions among society, the ability to change it from within is minimal. 
and therefore you need uh, pressure from governments outside and from civil society outside, exactly like the boycott divestment sanctions movement that pressured uh, South Africa in the 80s uh, in particular. But the U.S. is doing the opposite. The U.S. is not only uh, uh, not pressuring Israel, but it's, it's, it's supporting Israel. It's supporting Israel in many ways. One way it's supporting Israel is that it channels uh, uh, well over $3 billion a year to Israel. Now, three bill, over $3 billion a year divided by uh, uh, the, popula- the, the citizenry in Israel uh, comes to about uh, $400 a year for the for, so, so per capita. So each Israeli citizen gets from the U.S. government, from the taxpayers in the United States, $400 a year stimulus check. Mm-hmm. But as but but different from the U.S. citizens that received the stimulus te- check or a few during COVID. The Israeli citizens have been receiving them for the past 50 years. 50 years we receive stimulus checks in a sense, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. go to us, it goes to the government. Right. And that's on the expense of the taxpayers. And then there's this war that's going on now, right? Mm-hmm. And and the war began with Israelis trying to dispossess Palestinians, this round began, Mm -hmm. with uh, Palestinians trying to dispossess Palestinians from a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And then the police acting extremely brutally and attacking worshipers in Al-Aqsa Mosque in, 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 in Jerusalem, the third holiest place of Islam. And then as a sign of uh, 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 solidarity, uh, uh, Hamas uh, um, uh, launched rockets on Israeli cities. Israel attacked, uh, has been attacking Gaza, and this has been going on. And, and, And what does Biden say? Biden says Israel has a right to defend itself. And I'm saying, what about the Palestinians? Don't they have a right to defend themselves from dispossession, from a military siege, from violence of the security forces and the settlers? And the U.S. foreign policy, the U.S. ambassadors, the U.S. uh, uh, Secretary of State and President do not see the Palestinians. The Palestinians are invisible towards them. And in this way, in this sense, I I must try to connect it to the Black Lives Matter movement in in the United States, who've been experiencing uh, uh, police brutality and institutionalized racism in this country, in the United States. And yet, president after president, including, I must say, including Barack Obama, did not see them did not change structural policies to, to, to make a change in the police force in the in the in in in, in I'm talking in Montana mm-hmm. in guns 
relating to guns, to kind of, people do not need automatic rifles. Indeed, I don't think people need guns, period. That's my view. And I was a paratrooper. I don't think people need guns. But they certainly need, do not need automatic rifles. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole legislation in the United States that comes from the militias and so forth, it's gone. It's over. And it needs to be changed. But Obama didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I only hope that the next president will. We'll mm -hmm. see. Yeah. Certainly Trump didn't do anything. No. No. Well, um, yeah, you, th th those are some really great points you make. Um, I, I have, uh, there's a, a, somebody who's going to be listening to this, who's uh, Jewish, American uh, Jewish, grew up in New York City. And he asked, he asked me to ask you a question. And, and um, what he has difficulty with is uh, he, he supports Palestinian rights. And, um, but he's got a lot of relatives who it's uh, like the, you know, the state of Israel can do no wrong and, or at least no major wrong. And uh, how, I mean, and you must experience this as well uh, within family or friends or neighbors. I mean, how, how do you talk about this and the, uh, you know, it's pretty famous, the um, uh, APAC, which is a, a lobby group, very powerful lobby group in the United States, which seems to really have a lot of sway over uh, U.S. politicians, um, and uh, including uh, apparently President Biden as well, seems to be very supportive. Um, I mean, how, how, how is it that, uh, you know, uh, maybe you would answer that question? How do you, how do you talk to other, uh, how do you talk to supporters of, of uh, things continuing the way they are, uh, despite, um, you know, knowing other things? I mean, I think there's two questions here, actually, is... One has to do with the lobbying system in the United States, and I think that's changing. I think that the the Jewish population in the United States, which once supported APAC, which is a, a very formidable uh, pro-Israel lobby, um, uh, is no longer supporting APAC uniformly. I think there are uh, they, there's wonderful groups sprouting about in in the United States, primarily Jewish Voices for Peace, which is has hundreds of thousands of uh, of followers, and is a grassroots kind of mobilization and lobbying group that's that's working for. Uh, a kind of shared society in Israel-Palestine between Israelis and Palestinians, where where all the people live in the land are citizens, and all uh, have equal rights. Um, so, in terms of the lobbying, that that's it. Now, in terms of what your friend is saying, the the. There's a vast asymmetry of power uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. And 
if we understand it as a kind of colonial situation uh, where Israel is the colonizer and the Palestinians are, uh, are, are the colonized, uh, we, not only can you expect uh, resistance to the colonial project, but actually it is legal. According uh, to the 1977 pro additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, uh, uh, people have a right to, to use arms against uh, colonial regimes, against occupation, and against uh, racist regimes. So, so, so it's, it's legal. Um, what, what I would say to, to, I mean, I lived, as I mentioned before, in Beersheba. Beersheba is very close to the, to the Gaza Strip. And in 2008-9, when there was a war in Gaza, and in 2012, when there was a war in Gaza, and in 2014, when there was a war in Gaza, I was in Beersheba. And rockets were flying at our house, or towards, not at our house, but towards our city. And uh, 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 I had two young children at home, but in my house, there's a bomb shelter, right? In every Israeli house that was built after 1991, there's bomb shelters. And so you get the siren, you hear the siren, you have a minute to get to the bomb shelter, which is one of the rooms in the house, and you just go there and you're safe. The Palestinians, and then many people fled up north where there wasn't any missile, rocket launches and so forth. The Palestinians have nowhere to run. They have no bomb shelters. And, and, and the rockets that Israel's firing are not like these handmade or makeshift rockets that the Palestinians are, 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 are using. So what I was what I think we need to do is how to think of creative ways, how to get, first of all, uh, uh, not to present the, this conflict as if it's in any way symmetrical. It is not symmetrical. Second, we need to think of ways how to get out of this cycle of violence. And this cycle of violence has to be carried out through a process of uh, decolonization and democratization. If we believe in democracy, and I believe in democracy, then, then it cannot be a situation where you have millions of people that do not share the rights of millions of other people that are living more or less in the same space. Um, and, and that's what social justice calls for. And, and I'm on the side this time uh, of history of, of the strong, but not of the just. And, and, and I would like to think together of ways, how do we change that, 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 that in order to bring a just solution to this protracted conflict? Well, thank you. Um, Neve, we're, we're out of time. And I know you've got some things to do too. Um, but uh, very well said, and uh, really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing, 
sharing your uh, your knowledge and your time with us. And uh, uh, it's it's a joy to uh, see you too. Great seeing you. And uh, yeah, maybe we can meet up again in a year in a, in a, and catch up again at one point. That that sounds good. We can we can have a beer. All right. <laughs> All right. So bye bye. I'm gonna run. Yes. All right. Thank uh, you. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Bye bye. What's next in the news? Well, let's start with another uncontroversial topic. We like those here. We we do. Um, <laughs> yeah, we avoid controversy. This is milk toast. <laughs> former President Donald Trump being tossed from the presidential ballots in Colorado, Maine. Um, as you recall, the Colorado Supreme Court found in a four to three decision that Donald Trump is unqualified to be on the Colorado presidential primary ballot. The court cited, according to the Associated Press on December 19th, the U.S. Constitution's so-called Insurrection Clause, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This clause was, quote, designed to keep former Confederates from returning to government after the Civil War. It bars from office anyone who swore an oath to support the U.S. Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against it and has been used only a handful of times since the decade after the Civil War, end quote. And uh, the elections officer wasn't even judge. It was elect an election officer in Maine who decided on basically the same basis to keep him off the ballot. What do you think? Well, to me, <laughs> what this issue, um, you know, closely parallels what we were talking about with um, Gaza and genocide is that there, uh, you know, there are law, there are rules that have been formulated recently about genocide, but there's no roadmap. It's, it's ideological. You know, there are points that have to be recognized. These are indicators and it's genocide. If it satisfies these points, and South Africa is saying, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> There's enough to go by here. And in the case of whether, you know, the former president is a malefactor to a degree that fits the, the constitutional description of someone that's not qualified based on um, uh, unfriendly activity toward the integrity of the federal state, uh, I think they're comparable. Oh, Linda, you're... Oh, nobody's muted. saying anything. I guess Jim threw a bomb. Is it the job of the elections officer for Maine to make this decision? And if it is, I think it's good that he or she made it. You look at the Constitution, you look at what... Mm, section three, paragraph three, whatever it says. Section three. Yep. Um, and it's her job or his job to interpret what that means and make a decision about who goes on the ballot in Maine. Right. So uh, now it's it, that person is not, he or she is not a lawyer necessarily, not a judge, not a whatever, but this is the person who has 
the decision-making power here, right? Mm -hmm. To decide who goes on the ballot. So why shouldn't this person be allowed to say, I think Article 14, Section 3 applies here, and I'm going to say that Trump shouldn't be on the ballot? Yeah. Well, I think you would get pushback, and I'm not, you know, there's all kinds of analysis out there, and some of it makes sense partially, and some of it makes no sense. But um, there is an argument that the Section 5 part of Article or uh, Article 14, right, uh, that Congress is empowered to set up the rules of how that's supposed to happen. And in fact, they had done so, um, but not any, you know, they sort of relieved um, anybody from keeping Confederate um, oath takers, as it were, uh, <clears throat> and had relieved the duty of keeping them off the ballot back in the 1890s or 1880s, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so Congress has, is given the ability in the constitution to, uh, to change, to, to write legislation to enforce that and to give rules on how that's mm -hmm. to be enforced. They have not done so since mm -hmm. they have not done so. There's well, been true, as Congress on anything. At the end of at the end of section three, and God knows I'm not a lawyer and I don't even play one on TV or on the show. <laughs> but it says about this business about such a person who has not supported the Constitution and has acted against the government uh, shall not be on the ballot, right? Mm -hmm. Shall not serve. Shall not serve. And then it says, but Congress may, by a vote of two thirds of each house, remove such disability. Congress has not done that either. Uh -huh, well, they they, right. they did it for some Civil War people, but not but not in this case. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. and so so my point, I take a little contrary view. I'm I I think you need to take a big. There needs to be a bigger look at what's exactly going on here. So right. Um, number one, I think is that um, what's, uh, you know, people should be held to account according to the rules, right? According to the laws. Um, in this case, uh, there, you know, Trump has, you know, certainly not been found guilty in a fair and free trial of insurrection, right? This is something that the Colorado court heard evidence about and uh, made a decision based on that uh, uh, on some of that evidence, but it was not a trial about whether he committed insurrection or not. Okay. So I think that, um, and what also is mudding the water here is the perception that Trump is just uniquely evil in his ability to create fascism in the United States. And, and like you, Linda, I'm tired of hearing about Trump. I, I think I think derangement <laughs> syndrome is a real thing. I, I really do as along a lot of liberal Democrats. But um, you, what's going to happen is if if if, you know, the elections officer in Maine and the Supreme Court in Colorado go ahead and make these decisions and the Supreme Court lets them, I think what's going to do is it's just going to be one additional thing that the people mm -hmm. who are MAGA, right, is going to point to and say, we've been screwed. And you know what? Uh, Trump has been screwed unconstitutionally <laughs> in the past when he was president. It, it, it was 
never happened in our country's history before that the unelected national security blob and and other and the certainly the corporate media um i think the corp, the national security blob unconstitutionally undermined his presidency i think there's ample mm-hmm. evidence of that not uh, and that is unconstitutional. I don't care how you cut that, right? Because Trump was elected in a free and fair election, which of course he felt was free and fair, but you know, Hillary Clinton didn't feel it was free and fair. Uh, but you know, um, but I, uh, you know, as, as far as these things go, I mean, they're kind of rigged from the beginning, right? In mm-hmm. the candidates that get to appear on it. I think we're closer to authoritarianism right now without Trump. Uh, then, well, then we have been that's, uh, pushing in a long time, Mark. Yeah. I, well, and and I so, know, how but... would you say? I mean, we have uh, we have an oligarchy and not a democracy. I think we've all agreed yeah. on that. Yeah, Jimmy Carter and, told us that, and um, and he and was then, president. He and and like I and like I said, you know, uh, the machinations of the DNC to keep Senator Bernie Sanders off the uh, off the ballots, mm-hmm. which he sure. should have won. Uh, he sh- he should have won hands down. Um, I, so there's not free and fair elections there. Um, mm-hmm. We we have a government that's supporting uh, an apartheid regime committing genocide. Uh, and, and committing, you know, colonial acts, all imperialist acts all across the world. I, I, I'm thinking we're, um, you know, we don't need to give the MAGAites any more ammunition. Why not just wait until Trump is convicted, which I think he probably would be, in a fair and free and open court, and then then kick him off the ballot, right? I I, I think. Well, he that's... doesn't have to be convicted by the Constitution. He doesn't. Well, have to that's be not clear. That that's not exactly okay. clear, Linda. It's the Congress has not set down the rules for that. It's ambiguous. Right, and I think the present Congress is not going to do that. No. So well, they, they won't they do it. Intentionally anything. would avoid do doing their job. But so I right, think I think in in terms of if the Constitution is going to have any meaning whatsoever, okay, that uh, that you know it'd be politically smart for them to wait until he's convicted and then knock him off. Then it's then there's no right, argument, okay. right? All people will argue, but it becomes very clear. People right will now, argue, and he lost by what seven million votes or something in twenty twenty, yeah. and they still attack. <laughs> well, he still he still lost attack. the first time, They're also, Catholic, <laughs> right? So you, it doesn't. It's not like you're saving people from violent mobs or whatever by yeah, yeah, doing if, this because they yeah. did it after a perfectly, I mean, as perfect as they get around here after an exactly. election in which Trump clearly lost the popular vote and mm-hmm. even right. the electoral college, right? Right. So. You know, I what, what I'm don't... yeah. What I'm saying is, is if there's going to be any kind of reconciliation around these grievances, which I don't think there's going to be. I don't think there's going to be. Well, but but why why give more ammunition to the Trump supporters? That's they don't that's need thinking. it. They don't right. need this. I mean, there's. Well, still... I don't know. I I, I it, it, right now Trump. Know, Mark... could... <laughs> What's that? Let's remember the Trump supporters do what they're told. They, they they're not they're yeah. automatons yeah. that are yeah. fed nonsense by the righty verse. Well, I, so I'll say this: as they're, they're not making choices, they do what they're told. 
Well, look, I've, you know, and, and the same, the same, the same could be said about Biden, right? I mean, I, I could say the same mm. thing. Sure Are you sure? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll, but, I'll say. But Mark, so what, what's the, what's the point of just saying, we'll just take no action and wait until the guy's on the ballot and then a trial will throw him off. And then we can, we can take, you know, we can take. Mm -hmm. refuge behind the shield of a free and fair trial which doesn't mean a flying fig to any of these people right well, it will just but, uh, mean that he's that the court has thrown him off which is another matter mm -hmm. in their minds right. of offense to his I, I but I think that's you know the the Trump voters that I know that's kind of a slander on them and because yeah. They a lot of them don't like Trump, but they don't like all the mat. I mean, look, I, I I think that's why I make the statement that I think we're close. Uh, we're we could have fascism in here totally brought on by the Democratic National Committee. We we could we're, we're absolutely easily. on on track for that. And if easily. Trump were in charge and were had multiple. You know, I mean, he would do the same thing. I'm saying that neither side in this has uh, is is going to be the savior of for the rest of us. And that authoritarianism, you, you can look at right. the um, the uh, during, uh, you know, the the Twitter files. Right. Very, very revealing how the Biden administration is basically leaning on the social media companies to ban anyone from having any kind of contrary yeah. opinion about like you know, the, COVID, I, you know, I, the COVID vaccines when we covered yeah, this. You know, I, I'm sympathetic, Mark, but I, but, but you know, to throw the ball out <laughs> in Linda's field, um, you know, there was, you know, the Roman empire function, but there was a lot wrong with it. But right. if, if you have a, ch a choice of who's in charge, You'd rather not have Nero or Caligula. And, you know, maybe you can't fix things to make them ideal, but there are extremes of evil. And it's is best to avoid evil in any way you can, even right. if you can't eliminate it. Yeah. And, that, and, that, that's why and I'm not I'm voting concerned, for one of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm concerned that somebody on the other side is going to discover the amnesty act of 1872, the U S grant it, you know, propagated because um, he wanted to undo whatever, whatever severity there was about incorporating the elites in the South and all, and uh, say, let's let bygones be guy bygones because I have read it and it is, very nebulous and not proscriptive in any way, shape, or form. And that that if if that document became and part of the discussion we're having now, it's going to be ugly. Linda, last yeah. word on this. Oh, what did you say, Mark? Oh, let, you get the last word on this before we move to the next. Oh, gosh, I, I shouldn't. Well, as I said to you, my my principle is just not to listen to look at or read <laughs> anything that has anything to do with Trump anymore, because 
the longer you look into the monster's eyes, the more monstrous you become. And and that's sort of it. I mean, I don't know what's right or wrong here, Mark, but I just have this gut feeling and I have no, I have no mm, brief for the Democratic Party at all. You know that. But I just, my gut feeling is somebody has got to say to this guy, and if the election director in Maine is the one, I'm sorry, fella, you're looking really awful and you ought not to be the president. I mean, that that's just my gut feeling. And I'm there you go. Okay. <laughs> Finish. <laughs> well, where do we go next, Mark? Well, we go local. Let's. Uh, oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, well, if you recall, last summer and fall, the Missoula City Council has been agonizing over the increase of the unhoused in Missoula, which actually mm -hmm. is everywhere. Um, this is an economic crisis. Um, but the city council has failed to agree to a humane answer. Instead, uh, the council seems hellbent on criminalizing the unhoused without calling it that uh, in order to comply with the law. Instead, uh, In response, some of the unhoused have organized and are fighting back. With the support of the Western Montana Democratic Socialists of America, Montana Women Vote, the Missoula Tenants Union, and the Sierra Club, the Unhoused Neighbors Union is circulating a petition to oppose the ordinance. And I'm going to read the petition. Uh, Missoula Unhoused Neighbors Union, join us in asking the Missoula City Council to abandon their proposed ordinance banning sleeping outside. In the midst of a housing crisis, Missoula is drafting an ordinance to criminalize sleeping in tents and cars. The proposed ordinance limits when people can sleep outside, only allowing it if shelter space or other temporary housing is deemed not available. With current shelter capacity unable to meet demand, enforcing this ordinance violates the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. Additionally, the ordinance only tells people where they cannot go. Prohibited places will include all parks, areas within 100 feet of businesses and residences, 300 feet of schools, 1,000 feet of shelters, and 100 feet of waterways, effectively pushing people out of the city. Lastly, the ordinance will force people to uh, relocate their tent or vehicle every three days. That's very disruptive. Leaving people to ask, where will I go? This ordinance will be devastating for our community and will not make the problem disappear. We, the Unhoused Neighbors Union, and the undersigned insists that the city abandon this inhumane ordinance and stop planned encampment sweeps. When we force people to move all of their belongings every three days, they're more likely to lose medications, form of ID, and other valuables. Frequent mandatory relocations will feed a cycle of loneliness, exhaustion, and insecurity that limits the grace, dignity, and kindness required to care for ourselves and our neighbors. Forcing people away from resources near schools, daycare, and shelters jeopardizes safety and disrupts community. Policies that make the daily lives of unhoused folks harder are doomed to fail. This ordinance does nothing to address the factors that lead to homelessness and keeps people from escaping it. 
The ban will push unhoused people into the shadows and away from the critical resources and health care that they need. This policy will not lead to fewer unhoused folks. Instead, it will disrupt stability and lead to more individuals in our hospitals, our jails, and our court system. We want a plan, not a ban. In conclusion, we must implement a plan that offers solutions rather than banishment of people who are unhoused from public spaces. Punishment and control simply cannot address problems born out of a lack of access to resources. What we need is a plan to help people with housing, with adequate temporary options until there is enough housing. To accomplish this, we must abandon this ordinance and begin the process of engaging our unhoused neighbors as experts who have solutions by treating them as partners in, not obstacles to progress. Community-driven solutions are the way forward, end quote. Sounds great. Agreed. Pretty well written, huh? Yes. Um, yeah, extremely well. well written. Is that your work, Mark? No. <laughs> No, it's the unhoused uh, uh, unhoused neighbors union, and uh, and there's a lot of collaboration with the groups that I mentioned before. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if you Good. if if Good. anyone cares to sign this position, you can go online and do so at um, http colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash unu one two six zero. That's uh, bit.ly for those of you who use that. bit.ly forward slash unu one two six zero. Great, great. Well, God love them. I hope I hope they can find a way to to adent, I mean to fix this problem. But as you said, it's everywhere. Just yes, it, it is. Everywhere. It sure is, and it. I think it's humiliating that this country that calls itself the richest land on earth does such a terrible job of taking care of a large percentage of its citizens. Yes. There are people that reside here that aren't billionaires and st still <laughs> deserve some space on this planet. There you go. Well said. So as is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions and places to live. Besides the Missoula Starbucks United Workers, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana among the service industry and other industries as well. That's right, Jim. We support self-organizing workers in Western Montana. There are five worksite self-organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com, w-e-s-t-e-r-n-m-t-w-a at gmail.com, or by leaving a message at, much easier to say, 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. Well, thanks, Linda and Jim, for a really good show. I, I like wrestling with you guys. Duking it out. Duking it oh, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and thank you uh, for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our website at www.10, 
1015kfgm.org, and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.